Elias scripture text for this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 18. Second Samuel 18, and we'll be we'll be uh, splitting up things here with the uh, the uninspired chapter breaks in the script in the uh, our English Bibles. Uh, we'll be going to uh, from 1819 to 198. So chapter 18, verse 19 through 19, verse 8. So either just listen or read along to this portion of God's word. Then Ahimez of the son of Zadok said, Let me run and, and bring the news uh, that the king, excuse me, that the, the Lord has freed him from the hand of his enemies. But Joab said to him, You are not the man to carry the news this day, but you shall carry news another day. However, you shall carry no news today because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushites, Go, tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushites bowed to Joab and ran. Now Ahimaaz, uh, the son of Zadok, said once more to Joab, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushites. And Joab said, Why would you run, my son, since you will have no reward for going? But whatever happens, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimez ran by way of the plain and passed up the Cushites. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof by, of the gate by the wall and raised his eyes and looked, and behold, a man running by himself. And uh, the watchman called and, and told the king. And the king said, If he is by himself, there is good news in his mouth. And he came nearer and nearer. Then the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, Behold, another man running by himself. And the king said, This one also is bringing good news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimaaz, of the son of Zadok. And the king said, This is a good man and comes with good news. Ahimaaz called and said to the king, All is well. And he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. And he said, Blessed is the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who lifted their hands up and lifted their hands against the Lord, my Lord, the king. The king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? And Ahimez answered, when Joab sent the king's servant and your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I, I did not know what it was. Then the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Behold, the Cushite arrived. And the Cushite said, Let my lord the king receive good news, for the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. 
Then the king said to the Cushite, and the Cushite answered, Don't rise up against you for evil. Be as that young man. And went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. The victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people, for the people heard it and it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day, as people who are humiliated steal away when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and cried out with a loud voice, O oh my son Absalom, O oh Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who today have saved your life and the life of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, Surely not a man will pass the night with you. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. So the king arose and sat in the gate when they told all the people, saying, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. Then all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled, each to his tent. Over the years, I've had the, uh, the sad responsibility and occasion uh, to watch uh, many people die uh, and to tell other people that uh, their loved one has died. And no doubt, uh, for those of us here who have lived long enough, uh, you've had uh, similar experiences as well of telling others that that someone they love has died. And it is never easy, and it does not get easier uh, with having done it before. But as believers, uh, what impacts how we deal with the deaths of those around us is whether or not they know the Lord, whether or not they know his salvation. A death is always hard, but there is comfort and there is hope for believers who pass on comfort and hope for their families and friends. And that is a comfort and hope that is absent in the deaths of those apart from the Lord. 
in today's passage, David mourns Absalom. So we'll look at this situation and and see why it is so grieving to David, and yet uh, how it also uh, speaks of of his responsibility as king, and and uh, how he how he is chastised and and uh, made to put his uh, his leadership back in order, even in the midst of his grief. And we'll see as well how this applies to our situations as well as our understanding of of David's greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, first, informing David in verses 19 through 32. Now, last week we looked at uh, chapter 17, 24 through 18, 18, and there we saw how Absalom and David's forces faced off in battle. As they prepared, we saw that David had uh, had, uh, three experienced commanders uh, serve uh, his rank. And a large number of men had actually joined forces while they were waiting for Absalom to to amass his great army. We also saw that there were three men who brought needed supplies, including much-needed food to David, his army, his family, and his followers. Absalom's army had, had certainly superior numbers, but they had far less experienced leadership. At the insistence of his men just before the battle, uh, David stayed behind in safety. And then we saw that the Lord gave David's forces victory as they battled largely in a forest and were told that 20,000 men lost their lives. Absalom was retreating when his hair got caught in the branches of an oak tree. And his mule ran out from under him, leaving him suspended by his hair. He was defenseless. He was discovered by Absalom's men. And although David had told his commanders, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom, Joab and his armor bearers killed him. In today's passage, David is told about his son Absalom's death. He mourns deeply. Yet his mourning is so extreme that he neglects his responsibility and fails to honor those who have fought for him. It is Joab who then boldly rebukes the king. And David then returns to his his responsibilities. And in all that, we'll see how these events restore David to, to active kingship over the people we'll also find application to our times of mourning and how this points us to Christ. And we begin with 19 through 32, where we're told how David learns of Absalom's death. Now, Joab and his armor bearers have killed Absalom, uh, and that was, again, against David's instructions. But Joab still needs to send word to David that Absalom is dead so that David can put an end to this rebellion and be restored to his rightful place as uncontested king of Israel. But telling David certainly will be difficult and maybe even a risky job. Uh, we, we have that saying about, about not blaming the messenger. Well, sometimes the messengers are blamed. They might receive glory. They might receive punishment. And so this is a risky thing. In verse 19, we see that Ahimez, 
a son of Zadok the priest, volunteers to run to King David and tell him that the Lord has freed him from the hands of his enemies. And notice that Ahimaaz recognizes that it is the Lord who has brought about this deliverance from Absalom and his rebellion. Now many years earlier, when fleeing from Saul, David wrote words which the Lord again fulfills in rescuing him from Absalom. David wrote years before, Exalted be the God of my salvation. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me from those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord, and I will sing praises to your name. And so David once again would have cause for praise because the Lord has rescued him, delivered him from someone who sought his life. The Lord preserved David and his kingship by bringing Absalom and his rebellion to an end. So Ahimaaz rightly recognizes that this is an occasion for praise and that the proper praise and credit goes to the Lord for what he's done. But Joab knows that David is overly concerned for his son and he will not respond to the news with the joy of victory that he might normally have when a rebellion is put down. And so in verse 20, Joab tells Ahimaaz not to take the news to David today. You can, you can do messenger work some other day. Because this news will contain the fact that the king's son is dead. But in verse 21, Joab then turns to someone else commands a Cushite to tell David the news of the victory instead. He is to tell David what he has seen. Joab here seems to be protecting Ahimaaz from David's possible wrath against the messenger who brings the hard news. But in verses 22 through 27, we're told that Ahimaaz insists on going anyway. And Joab relents and lets him run after the Cushite. Basically says, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go anyway. And he releases him. He is eager to tell David about the end of the rebellion. Uh, he has, as you may recall, supported David's kingship all the while. And he wants to share this joy of victory with him. Him as uh, takes then a faster route to where David is and eventually passes the Cushite on the way. And he comes to David head, David's headquarters in Mahanaim first. Uh, David sees him, uh, or the, rather the watchmen see him in the distance first. And notice when he's told, he assumes that it's good news. He assumes that this is good news all the way through. To him, good news is that somehow Absalom's life has been spared. The Cushite is spotted in verse 26, and David is still optimistic. This one also is bringing good news. In verse 27, the watchman can identify the first runner as a Himas, and David calls him a good man that must be coming with good news. 
when of him as speaks in verse 28, he states all is well. And he falls on his face before the king in respect and says, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who lifted up their hands against my Lord the king. Notice that once again he, he recognizes that it is the Lord who has brought the victory over those who rebelled against the anointed king. And again, this should be a cause for praise. As we sang earlier in, in Psalm 20, we will sing for joy over your victory. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. And so David has had cause previously in his life to see the Lord work to protect him, to preserve his kingship, to put down the enemies of David and Israel. And so this should be another occasion like that. The victory has belonged to the Lord, who is to be praised and thanked, and, and there's to be joy over this. But sadly, David's focus is not on what the Lord has done or what many brave soldiers has, have done for the Lord and for him, and not even on mourning those who have lost their lives in battle to protect David. His immediate response on hearing this news, in verse 29, is, Is it well with the young man, Absalom? Ahimaaz, though apparently a, a good man, uh, certainly fails here. He's no doubt disappointed by what David's immediate concern is, not praise over the victory, not thanks for his men, but concern for the man who led the rebellion. And so he, he, he fudges it here. He says that, that there was much commotion in the victory when he was sent off and something was happening and I don't really know what the story is. And verse 30, David dismisses him quite quickly. I think he, he recognizes that he's, he's not being forthcoming here. And it's interesting to note that his name will not appear again. Uh, this seems to, to end his usefulness to David. But in verses 31 and 32, the Cushite messenger arrives and gives a message very similar to what Ahimez has just said. But when David falls up, follows up with his question about the well-being of Absalom, the Cushite does not avoid the truth, but states, Let all the enemies of my lord the king and all those who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. In other words, Absalom is dead. The Cushite's words are, are loyal to the king. And he rightly sees justice in what has been done. Now it may be that as a foreigner he doesn't know that Absalom is David's son. But he probably does. And he knows that this is a good thing. That an evil rebel plot to replace and kill King David, God's anointed, has been put down. And it is the Lord who has done it. As David again wrote in an earlier place in his life, in Psalm 7, 
So the Lord has answered here. O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. If a man does not repent, his mischief returns on his own head, and his own skull on his own skull, his violence descends. And that is true. And David could see it as true in other occasions. But all he can think of now is that it is his son who has been judged. And so his response is quite different. So second, David's response to the news in verse 33. David now knows that Absalom is dead. And his response to the, to the news is one of overwhelming grief. Notice how our author vividly reports David's emotional state. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now all of us here most likely have experienced a grief over the death of a loved one. And there is nothing wrong. In, in fact, it is good and appropriate to mourn over death. For death is not a good and natural thing. In fact, Jesus himself, when Lazarus, his friend, died, we're told in John 11 that when he gathered with the others who were there and he saw Mary and the others weeping, Jesus wept with them. Yet in this case, there are additional reasons for the depth of, of David's grief and his tears. David knows that his own sins have, have contributed to Absalom's rebellion and death. After the Lord forgave David of his adultery and murder, the Lord said that there would still yet be consequence. 2 Samuel 12 and 10 said, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Of course, Absalom's rebellious and sinful attitudes and actions against the Lord and against his father were his own. And yet, the Lord sovereignly lifted restraints on Absalom. And great wickedness resulted, including murder, manipulation, adultery, rebellion, and the deaths of thousands of men. And Absalom himself died, still relatively young. And worse than that, he died defiant against the Lord God, unbelieving and under God's wrath for his sins. Certainly it's heartbreaking when someone we love dies. But it's so much harder when they die without the Lord as their Savior. Now, for fellow believers, we can know the comfort of passages like John 11, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And we can rest in those and other sure promises of eternal life and in God's grace uh, to bring the souls of those who belong to him into his presence at death and raise their bodies at the resurrection. But for those outside of Jesus, outside of salvation, we do not have that hope. And so David has many reasons to weep. And so he weeps. We weep for those who die, and even more so, again, when they show no evidence of of knowing the Lord, no evidence of saving grace in their lives. Yet even with that said, for those who are still alive that are around us, there is hope that the Lord may yet be pleased to turn them to himself and to the salvation that's offered in the gospel. There is yet hope for unbelieving folk around us, family and friends and neighbors, that the Lord might yet be pleased to save. And so may we be praying for those we love who are still in rebellion against the Lord God, that they might know God's grace and the gift of forgiveness and mercy that's found only in Jesus. As Paul prayed in Romans 10 and 1, so we do as well. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. But David's words in verse 33 also remind us of our limitations. And we need to have uh, this in mind and surrender such things to the Lord and rest in his goodness and sovereignty concerning those around us who do not yet know the Lord. David says, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Now any of us here with children can certainly relate to this. Uh, We would gladly give our lives to save the lives of our children. And no doubt David's sins and failures that brought about this situation makes him feel this loss even more heavily, even with with guilt and responsibility. Yet he no doubt mourns even more the spiritual side of things and the lost condition of Absalom's soul. But David is not Jesus. He cannot be the saving substitute for anyone. And you and I aren't Jesus either. We cannot save anyone. And we are not the Holy Spirit. We cannot change anyone's hearts and make them believe. David no doubt deeply regrets his past sins. And no doubt all of us have made foolish decisions in the past, even sinful ones, that have brought difficult situations on others. But in the end, 
folk are responsible for their own selves before the Lord. And there is no sinful impact that we've had on others that the Lord cannot undo by His grace and, and power should He choose to have mercy on others. And so may we let go of trying to be the Holy Spirit or trying to be anyone's Savior and instead pray that the Lord would be merciful on those that we love who are now yet unsaved. And may we also rest in what He chooses to do in His sovereignty. But we do that with hope. We pray for those around us. We bring them into contact with the Gospel. And we remember that while anyone remains still alive, there is hope that the Lord might yet bring them to Himself. Their stories are not yet over. And if you're listening to this and are still rebellious against the Lord and His claims on your life, if you're still rejecting the free offer of the forgiveness of God and eternal life and fellowship with God by Jesus Christ and His saving work alone, then I would implore you to please reconsider. Because, like Absalom, there will be a day when you stand before the God who has made you. And denying God's existence won't make Him go away and it won't make judgment go away. And left to your own goodness, there is no hope. Hebrews 9 and 27 says, It is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. None of us can stand before God and rightly claim to be good enough for heaven because we're all sinners. Romans 3 tells us there is none righteous, not even one. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You do things that you know are wrong, and you don't do things you're required to do. And when our lives are compared to the standards God gives in his law, and the sense of it that is given in our consciences, we are all condemned as sinners. But in God's grace and mercy, God has made a way for sinners to be reconciled to Him, to be declared not guilty in His court, and given eternal life and forgiveness and fellowship with Him. And this is only by what God does for us in His grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Before creation, the persons of the triune God agreed to save a people from their sins. And God the Father sent God the Son, who became also fully human, to be our saving substitute. He humbled Himself and lived this life with all of its trials and temptations. And He fully obeyed all of God's laws, which we fail to do. He also took the wrath of God due to His people for their sins upon himself on the cross. And after three days in the grave, God the Father raised him from the dead, a, a living Savior and an accepted sacrifice. And all those who trust in him and his work alone are justified before God, are covered in his righteousness, are forgiven by Jesus' sacrifice, are made righteous by that covering and are eternally reconciled to the triune God. 
As we're told in Romans 3, but now God has made known a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Scripture tells us that there is no other way to be right with God or to avoid the wrath that your sins rightly deserve. We're told in John 3 and 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. And so, if you do not yet know Christ, may you see the tragedy of Absalom's rebellion against God and repent of your own rebellion, of your own sin, and trust in Jesus for salvation. Well, third, Joab's rebuke and, and David's return to his responsibilities in verses 1 through 8. David's response to his son's death is in many ways understandable for the reasons that we've just noted. And yet, the extreme way in which he mourns and the neglect to properly handle the very weighty responsibilities he carries as king are very troublesome and possibly destabilizing to the entire nation of Israel, especially recalling that there is popular support for a rebellion that has just been put down. In verses 1 and 2, Joab returns from the battlefield with the army, and he finds David weeping and mourning over his son Absalom. While David certainly has the right to mourn the death of a son, by his continuing to be publicly inconsolable, he is failing in his role as king. David's army, as well as all of David's supporters, are thankful to the Lord for the victory he has given and how the life and rule of David, the Lord's anointed, has been preserved. A rebel leader who sought David's crown, who took over the city, the capital of Jerusalem, has been defeated. Yet David very sadly fails to thank his fighting men and his supporters or honor those who died in battle or even praise the Lord who gave victory. He takes the joy of victory and turns it into mourning as he cannot move from his focus on Absalom's death. As Joab notes in verse 2, the victory that day has turned to mourning for all the people. And notice that the king is grieving his son such that people who fought and supported, fought for and supported David, we're told in verses 3 and 4, sneak back into the city as those who are ashamed, basically the shame of deserters, that they're ashamed because David is still mourning his son and not being thankful for the victory the Lord has given. They are demoralized and they're ashamed as their king David is more concerned with Absalom's death 
than with acknowledging their role in the victory. Commentator William Blakey writes, Everyone was discouraged. The man for whom they had risked their lives had not a word of thanks for any of them and could think of no one but that vile son of his who was now dead. Absalom is or David rather is still crying out, Oh my son Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. There's a reminder here that Joab was certainly wise in seeking to kill Absalom when he hung from the tree. No doubt David would have once again failed to bring justice to bear on Absalom, even after he slept with, with his concubines, even after he led a deadly rebellion. And now Joab steps in to bring David to his senses. Joab is an interesting and a complex person. He has often served himself in his own interests, as we've seen him from time to time. But he is also a bold and tell-it-like-it-is kind of guy. And out of love and loyalty to his king and his country and his cousin and friend David, he speaks very bluntly these uncomfortable but necessary truths in verse 5. And uh, through seven, rather. He goes to David's house and boldly states, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who today have saved your life. And he adds, the, they also saved the lives of his family. Joab reminds him of what was saved in this victory and the shame that he is bringing on those who risk their very lives to save him. And he is doing that by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. That's a very powerful turn of phrase there. Actually, it made me think of all kinds of people I've known who made a mess of their lives by doing this very same thing. They love folk who hate them and are destructive to them in their lives, and they neglect those who actually love them and want what is best for them. And David is doing that very thing here. Joab continues and tells David that he's shown that his servants are as nothing to you, and says that David would be pleased if Absalom were alive and they were all dead. David's heart and his behavior are, are wrong here. And Joab rightfully calls him out. Matthew Henry has a helpful uh, summary of David's failings here. And I won't quote him, but mention the things that he mentions. That David is favoring his wicked son over those who sacrificially love and serve him. That he's denying the appropriateness of God's justice on his wicked son, putting personal affection over the Lord's righteous judgments. He's putting his personal response above the good of the nation, and he's king. He's putting, or he's rather being ungrateful for God's mercy in his deliverance, and that of his family, and that of his kingdom as well. 
And he's not guarding his words and passions like one in responsibility needs to do. So Joab concludes in verse 7 by challenging David to go out and speak kindly to your servant. And then he says bluntly, unless you do this, you will lose the support of all of your soldiers and all of the people today. And it will be worse than anything, any trouble you've known over the course of your entire life. It will all collapse today unless you do the right thing. And to his credit, verse 8, David does the right thing. He does what Joab says to do. He gets up and he goes to the gate, which is the place where the king would appear before the people publicly. And so all the people came before the king. This likely involves his supporters passing by in review and receiving his thanks for the sacrifices that they have made for the Lord and for him. And so he, he steps up and he resumes his role as king. And he shows his thankfulness and gratitude to his supporters who have fought for him and by the Lord's blessing have put down a rebellion. We're reminded here of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules and reigns over us and over all creation. We're reminded in David's sorrow of the fact that, that our king is, is full of compassion and he knows the heartache and sorrow that this life can bring. And so he is not a king who is detached from us and our hardships. Isaiah 53 reminds us he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so when, when we go through great difficulties, even such as these, the death of, of, of those we love, even the death of those we love who are outside of salvation, Jesus knows those, those feelings. He knows those things. And so we pray too and know the presence of a Savior, a King, who is acquainted with grief and a man of sorrow. And so he can comfort us because he has walked in those situations. And yet unlike David, he is perfect. He never fails to rule well. He's not overcome by passions. And so he never disappoints or disregards his servants. He is the perfect king who loves us deeply and who leads us flawlessly. And so we can trust in him fully. We're told of his loving rule in Revelation chapter 1. Grace and peace, grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The passage also reminds us of the blessings 
of brothers and sisters in the Lord who love us and are present with us in, in good and hard times and who give godly counsel to us. Commentator Richard Phillips wonders how David's situation would have been different had Jonathan still been alive. As it is, Jonathan is long gone, and David seems to be isolated in office without a close friend to come alongside. Phillips writes, When we find ourselves overcome and unable to manage our hearts, we should place ourselves under the care of godly friends and advisors and then accept their biblical counsel in times of grief and dismay. Now, Joab was used by the Lord to speak sense into David. Joab is, is an inconsistent fellow, not always an especially godly one either. And so there is a greater blessing in steady, godly counsel and companionship that we find deep comfort in at such difficult times. May we not let ourselves become isolated as David apparently had. We're reminded in 2 Corinthians 1 of the ways in which the Lord comforts us by his grace by sending others to comfort us. We read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. May we keep from, from this kind of isolation, but rather pursue relationships in Christ with brothers and sisters, and so grow with and help one another in times of, of difficulty and at all times and encourage one another in the love of Christ and be a sounding board for sound counsel in difficult times. And above all that, we know that the Lord Jesus is always with us. Our Heavenly Father is always with us. God the Holy Spirit is always with us. We have the triune God in fellowship with us through all things of life, even in grief and hardship, maybe even especially in grief and hardship. The triune God will never leave or forsake his people, and he will comfort you in your losses and encourage you in your walk with him. And what a wonderful blessing that is. And so let's close with words that, that speak to that. These words are from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you and praise you for this portion of your word and ask that you might apply it to our hearts. We certainly 
feel for and can sympathize with, with David in the death of his son, and especially as, as David um, mourns the, the loss of his son who was, who was far from God. We pray that, uh, that you would be uh, blessing us, that you, would, uh, that you would be at work in those that we love, who are yet outside of Christ, that you would be pleased to bring them to yourself before they stand before you. And we pray for, for those who are outside of Christ, that you would be warned in, in Absalom's death and judgment not to take that road yourself, but rather come to the Lord in repentance and faith and know his forgiveness offered in Christ. And we pray that, uh, that we would be helps and encouragements to one another uh, in our walks with the Lord as we go through great sadnesses and difficulties and, and oftentimes can be prone to isolation in those things, uh, that we would be reaching out to brothers and sisters and, and brothers and sisters would be reaching out to us in such times and that you would encourage us and give us hope uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, that we would be comforts and helps to one another. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.